1: Welcome, welcome to the Hustle Sold Separately. We are a weekly podcast dedicated to all of you amazing human beings that have been following me over the last six years. All amazing human beings that are new to the show and have just recently found this uh, and found me. I'm so so grateful, all of you guys. The you know we we have a, a wide variety of people who listen entrepreneurs and creators and artists and innovators and designers and producers and musicians and uh, CEOs and disruptors, hustlers. I mean, you guys are out there really, really doing it. And I always say that um, there is no conventional path. (laughs) There's only your path. And, uh, you know, for my day one listeners, thank you guys. The ratings and reviews are incredible. Uh, You guys know the drill for my newer listeners uh, as I always say, we don't glamorize or glorify end success because success is an arbitrary concept that is really geared around what is success for you. And often at times you see this in media and it says, hey, you're the $50 million startup that sold or $100 million startup that sold. I say if you're in the market and you're building something, you're building community around it and you have a purpose behind it, uh, and you're really into the details, you're already a success. And then from there, you define whatever metrics make sense to you, not what society says metrics through beautiful, lovely titles, and their beautiful, lovely numbers, (laughs) and all of the other things that you know, I can go on a tear on. Uh, I really, truly appreciate you guys tuning in each and every week. The, uh, you know, the numbers have been continuously rising. And uh, I couldn't do it without all of you guys. And I also appreciate all of the feedback. For those that are a little bit newer, I'm Matt Goddesman. You can find me on Instagram at Matt Goddesman. You guys know I answer each and every single DM, text, reply, and response for the last eight years, including there and on at HDFMagazine.com, or excuse me, on at HDF Magazine on Instagram. Uh, and reach out. And recently, a few of you have tested me. <laughs> you said, "I'm just making sure that you guys, you answer these." I do. Uh, I'm the person behind the brand and it's important that we develop this beautiful global community and we've been a community since the start and that's exactly where we intend to keep it going and uh, we've got another really great episode and we're gonna be talking about the importance of failure and normalizing failure among entrepreneurs and it's gonna be with Tom Eisenman and Christina Wallace and uh, I'm gonna get into their bios here shortly but um, many of you who have been following for a long time. Know that I don't even look at the word failure as failure, but data, as in that is telling you if something doesn't work, what do I need to change in my approach, and where do I need to pivot? Um, failure got this really nasty word, you know, kind of a, a reputation from society that you know it'll <laughs> never work, and you're, <laughs> and you're <laughs> it's just like you're 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 out of here. It's done and. Um, I just don't believe in that. So I'm really grateful we're going to be having this conversation, as you guys know, because I, I firmly believe that, look, the only way we ever understand anything is um, fully is we take action. Now, we can have some ideas and we can have a business plan. And we can do a whole bunch of other things. But movement and action is what gives us data. We either get a yes or we get a no. We either get a door slammed or we get a window open. We either <laughs> get you know, to the left or to the right you know, or in the middle. Like We find where we fit in. Um, Along the way, based on movement and taking chances and seeing what works and what doesn't work and being very present. So on that note, I've got two very incredible guests, uh, starting with Tom Eisenman. He is the Howard H. Stevenson Professor of Business Administration at Harvard, and he's a faculty co-chair of the Arthur Rock Center for Entrepreneurship. And since joining HBS faculty in 97, he led the entrepreneurial manager and introductory course taught to all first year MBAs and launched 14 electives on all aspects of entrepreneurship, including one on startup failure. So um, I'm excited to be talking about this. And he also authored um, more than 100 HBS case studies and his writing has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Guys, that's not easy for everybody listening. And he's also the author of Why Startups Fail, A New Roadmap to Entrepreneurial Success, which we're going to be talking about. And he also brought with him a guest, Christina Wallace. And she is a self-described human Venn diagram, which I love that when I, when I first saw that. I'm like, so well put uh, for many of us. Uh, she's crafted a career at the intersection of business technology and the arts. Uh, I could go on a a tear on that one as well, too. As you guys know, it's it's something I'm very passionate about, technology and the arts. And uh, she's Senior Lecturer of Entrepreneurial Management at Harvard Business School and is also the co-host of The Limit Does Not Exist, a podcast about uh, portfolio careers produced by iHeartRadio and co-author of The new, uh, New to Big, How Companies Can Create Like Entrepreneurs, Invest Like VCs, and Install a Permanent Operating System for Growth. Uh, I could go on a tear on that with you corporations that are listening out there, new CEOs, but but I'll let these two do it as well. So thank you both uh, for being here. I really appreciate you guys' time.
2: Man, <clears throat> thank you. Excited to be here. And can, can I say before, Chris, Christina, um, your comments about failure, um, fantastic. Love it. Um, you, you heard that Christina and I are both teachers, but failure is the best teacher. So yes. we'll
1: talk about that. Amen. Amen. How else would we know? So uh so Tom, let's we'll start with you. Um, how did we how did we get here? You know, I was telling you before the show, uh, the first question is always the same. You've got this incredible background. You've probably seen anything and everything when it comes to startups and uh successful quote unquote ones and, and ones that didn't make it and why they didn't make it, to characters and the players in the game, to the investors uh, so, but let's, we can go as far back as you'd like. Um, some people have gone back as far as, uh, you know, kindergarten or or the big bang theory, (laughs) but it's really up to you. Like, how do we get here and, and in the current role that you're in and, and why you decided to do the book? Well, you can go as far back as you'd like.
2: Yeah. So, um, the the short answer to how I got here is the failure of Christina's startup, which we're going to hear all about. Um, and, um, uh, even shorter explanation was I was a failure at explaining failure. Um, and, and if you teach entrepreneurship, something like uh, two thirds or three quarters of startups fail. And if you can't explain the most important phenomenon in your field, y- y- you got to have a little bit of self doubt about um, what's going on, whether you're teaching the right things. Um, and and uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll hear about Quincy apparel, which is the, the business that Christina co-founded um, back in, Christina, 2011 or 12? 2011, right? 2011. Yeah, and um, so I, I was about halfway through, um, joined the HBS the Harvard Business School faculty in 1997, and about halfway through that, started to work um, with um, aspiring student entrepreneurs in earnest, and, and, and as you mentioned, sort of taught the core entrepreneurship course. And st- uh, Christina and her co-founder were students of mine in that course, Uh, They graduated, um, went off to consulting like so many MBAs, but hated it like um, so many MBAs. I don't know if that's fair. Christine is nodding yes, (laughs) um, if if you're listening and you can't see. Um, Anyway, it's not for everybody. And um, uh, they had an idea, uh, which she'll describe for an apparel company. And I loved the idea. And I loved the co-founders and um, invested in them, encouraged them. And um, uh, a year later, the business failed. And I could point to a lot of reasons why it might have failed, but I couldn't pinpoint the cause. And and that's pretty disconcerting if you're in my line of work. So um, I I set out then, sort of this is now eight years ago, um, to to study failure, learn as much as I could and um, figure out if there were patterns, if there was anything entrepreneurs could do to avoid these recurring patterns, and if they were going to fail, to fail in ways that were less painful, you know, at least learn something from it, be able to bounce back stronger from it. Christina, do you have anything to add to that?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, it's um, it's funny. So when I was uh, Tom's student, uh, sitting, sitting in the second row as he was uh, teaching me everything about entrepreneurship, I don't come from a business background. My family uh, was very middle class from the middle of Michigan, um, union workers building cars for General Motors, kind of a, a world. And when I came to Harvard Business School, I was kind of learning everything for the first time. And entrepreneurship had never been on my radar, but uh, but I stumbled into Tom's class and I thought it was a fantastic um, approach to what I love to do in the arts, sort of making something from nothing, figuring out what, what your audience wants uh, and pulling it together with some twine and um, and gaffer's tape. And like the curtain goes up whether or not you're ready, right? So, so um was really excited by entrepreneurship, but I complained when I was a student in his class that we didn't have any failures to study, mm-hmm. that um, failure was so huge. And yet all we did was study the successes. And so uh, went out, started the company. Um, the the uh, you know, core idea was that women should have clothes that fit them. Um, seems revolutionary. And, uh, and yet it's really hard to do. So one of the big uh, aha moments as a first-time founder is if no one is doing a thing that seems really obvious, <laughs> you might want to figure out why, right? It's not that you're the first one who ever had this idea. There's, there's probably a reason. And maybe it's a reason that you can overcome. Or maybe it's a thing that um, is no longer true, right? That technology has changed or the cost of something has changed. And maybe now it is possible in a way that it hasn't been before. But but you need to know why. No one is doing an obvious thing. Well, the obvious thing that, that we were trying to solve on FIT was complicated by a really complex supply chain. And neither my co-founder or I had that experience. And so it's a very expensive thing to learn on the job. You need a lot of money to learn how to make things uh, in a manufacturing business, um, particularly in garment manufacturing. And so we got to the end of our runway. We we raised some venture capital money. It wasn't as much as we hoped for. So it didn't give us as much opportunity to learn. And we ran out of money. We didn't have that sort of milestone that we needed to reach in order to get more people behind us. And we had to shut down. And uh, Tom was so gracious. He gave us a nice morning period uh, of of recovering from that, uh, that failure. It was truly the first time I failed at virtually anything in my life. Uh, and then he came and tapped me and my co-founder on the shoulder and said, hey, remember how you complained that we never study failure? <laughs> Do you want to be a, a case study on failure for Harvard Business School? Uh, and we said, yes, you know, at least uh, at least there might be something good coming out of that. And so now it's a course, uh, a case that we teach in the course year after year. And uh, and it's it's kind of subversive to, to show up in front of, you know, 900 students every yeah. single year who who in many cases believe that failure is the worst thing that could happen to them. Mm. And to be able to stand in front of them and say, no, literally, it was, it was bad, but I recovered. And in fact, I learned so much from that failure that it propelled my career easily five years faster than if I had stayed in the straight and narrow consulting path and tried to work my way up. A route like i hired myself into a job i was not exactly qualified for but i learned so much in that experience that i was qualified the next time around um and i think that that aha moment for so many of our students that that failure you know if you do it well if you're not burning bridges you're not breaking laws you're not screwing people over on the way down that it's actually an incredible opportunity to understand where the limits of your skills are right and what you need to learn and and how you can build those skills.
2: I, I love all of that. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Tom. So I was gonna say, Matt, that, th- that what you just heard from Christina, I've heard over and over again, <laughs> failed founders um, that basically, I ask them all, would you do it again? I mean, the, the pain, we could talk about some of the pain and the immediate aftermath of, of Quincy's failure, it's, was it's tremendous, but the learning, um, and, and, you know, almost everybody I've talked to has bounced back stronger, um, it, it, as, as long as you can reflect on what you like. Mean, some people are in denial forever. You know, it was always their co-founder's fault or the venture capitalists pushed them too hard to do stupid things or the regulators did something flaky that sort of took them by surprise and they don't learn. Um, and some people actually beat themselves up too much. So but if you can st- sort of stay away from those extremes and sort of find the zone where you take responsibility for what happened and, and learn from mm-hmm. it. Boy, it's powerful learning experience. I actually launched a a course where every single case is sort of inspired by. We're still teaching the Quincy case. Uh, Christina just had the schizophrenic experience of being both the teacher and the case protagonist. I don't know if you sort of ran from one side of the room to the other, put a different. I changed.
0: I changed my blazer, (laughs) and I referred to myself entirely in the third person throughout the whole class. And then I changed my blazer. I said, "Okay." I'm Christina now, let me tell you what happened.
1: <laughs> Christina A and
2: Christina B. <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly.
2: So so a whole course, I was actually worried when I created the course that it would bum the students out. I mean, like day after day, these failed startups and 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 the pain and the mistakes, but just the opposite, where the students were galvanized. Because I mean, what you basically see is you see these incredibly accomplished, smart, motivated people mm-hmm. um, who were back they, recruited, they recruit they an amazing team they raise money you know there's there's a lot of potential here so you know the the puzzle of like okay um why did that fail i mean it sort of galvanized the students just to sort of figure it out and then you know then I worried about okay when, once they see the pain the, the sort of the, the, the emotional pain the suffering the financial setbacks and so forth i would I would be scaring them away from entrepreneurship and you know somehow 10 years from now we would read like Harvard Business School hasn't graduated an entrepreneur in, <laughs> in the last 10 years, and it's Eisenman's fault. Um, but, and in fact, there are some students who say that, that they're rethinking it. They're either not going to do it or, or they're going to wait longer and wait till they have a really good idea. But even more of them say, yeah, you know, I, I understand it better. I understand some of the pressures that are going to be on an entrepreneur, but it makes me even more inclined to, to take the dive because I've seen these people and what they're doing today and, and what they've learned from it. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of
1: normal of leaning in to the conversation of these things happen. Let's mm-hmm. talk about these things so that way you're a little bit more prepared not to scare you but so to, to as you say normalize to to make it the space safe to say listen like these things just happen. You're we're just trying to figure out you know What you're doing, why you're doing it, how you're doing it, who are you doing it with, what's important, what should you pay attention to, what should you think about, you know, all these different things going into Mm -hmm. it um, versus just kind of going into it with the fairy tale of, oh, well, I'm going to be a startup founder. And by the way, Tom, I've got about four for you (laughs) of my own, you know, and then a couple that worked. And um, and to Christina, to your point. Uh, you know, I was a consultant until I turned it into an agency and, um, as a consultant, I would deal with so many, you know, high profile CEOs and they'd say, how do you know this stuff, man? And I'm like, cause I've failed so many different times or I saw so many (laughs) different mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I even had one person ask me, like, um, you know, she said, well, people always surprise me. I said, people never surprise me. And she's like, what do you mean? They like, they're, they are always doing something unpredictable. I'm like, that's predictable. I was like, always account for the human factor. Always account for the human factor. Humans will be humans, will be humans, will be humans. And um, there's an emotional intelligence that really needs to be learned in entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Um, And... Starting with ourselves and then how we are interacting with others and like, hey, we need to get to really real conversations. What are you good at? What can we mm-hmm. have somebody else do that you're not good at? Am I doing mm-hmm. that or is somebody else doing that? Where can we potentially hiccup? If we're going to hiccup, can we can we talk about how we might handle this? Can we? So mm-hmm. I, I'd be curious if, if does that conversation come up, Tom, like where um, we, we can pinpoint failures, we, we can see why things happen and in helping to get them better prepared. For either going at it again, (laughs) a second or third or fourth or 10th time, or for the first time, do we have that conversation of like, of, uh, you know, without sounding a little bit Gary Vee, but very like empathy and, uh, and uh, emotional intelligence, emotional quotient and like, hey, let's have very real conversations. And those are perfectly normal to have.
2: Yeah, you you know, the way the course starts, um, it starts like just what you'd expect I, I know you've got an MBA so this, this won't mm-hmm. surprise you it's it's the sort of classic MBA bs you know lots let's talk about the business model and let's tear it apart and let's do the analysis and and you know I want to I want to talk about the unit economics and, and boy of course all that's important but by the end of the course it, it, it's it's basically three parts out of four psychoanalysis right you know one, one of the last founders we had in um, the students concluded he was just too nice a guy, and, and uh, uh, this company didn't fail outright, but they did big layoff. They had to lay off a third of the workforce and uh, broke his heart. Um, and basically explained that um, um, it, it, you know he he'd um, hired many of those people and put them into jobs they wanted because he couldn't say no to them, and he loved them so much he wanted to give them the opportunity to grow. And you know just every every turn he made was being nice and, and having faith in his people. And, uh, um, you know, then the students had a rousing debate about like, was he fit to lead? Is this, you know, mm. can an entrepreneur afford to be a nice person? And, you know, half the students said, boy, if I can't be a nice person, you know, I'm not going there. And the other half said, yeah, not so simple. So true. Christina.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, I think one of the most important conversations that I have, with students now, I, you know, now I'm a professor, they're always coming to me saying, should I do this? Uh, The question I have is, do you have a game plan for when you're going to fail? Right? Not, not like assuming you're going to fail from the beginning, but let's not assume that you won't, right? If the majority do fail, how far are you willing to go? What does that safety net need to be for you, your family, the other pieces in place? Do you have someone whether it's a partner, a best friend, a therapist, do you have someone that you can talk to every week about the reality of what's happening in the ups and downs of the business? Or are you going to bottle that all up and, and just let it burst at the end, right? Do you have money? Do you have a, a cushion, something that you can live off of that isn't going to push you to make decisions for your business that are not the right decisions because you're out of runway? Right. One of the one of the reasons Quincy failed, and there are many, but one of them is that my co-founder and I were out of personal runway right. at a point where we had a term sheet from a VC that wasn't the right partner for us, but it was the only term sheet on the table and we needed money to keep going. So we took it and we shouldn't have. It. So are there things that you can put in place from the beginning? to support you in hopes that you're not making decisions that are going to cause you to prematurely fail, but also so that you have the right safety net that if you do fail, you can pick yourself back up pretty easily and that you're not going to do what I did, which was crawl into bed for three weeks, watch (laughs) the entirety of the West Wing, all seven seasons, top to bottom, uh, and speak to no one. I mean, I truly just like went inside and sobbed for three weeks. And then I got to the end of those three weeks and I was like, I actually don't feel any better than I did when I started. And this isn't this isn't helping me move forward. I need to go out and actually talk to people. I need to bring my community in to help me through this Uh, and, and did get back on my feet very quickly after that. But but I wasn't prepared for what happens if the whole thing falls apart.
1: I, I like the idea of um, we have exit strategies for success, but we also need exit strategies <laughs> for, That's exactly for if, it. you know, um, and, and I like that the conversation you're hearing more often than not, like, it's okay if you don't want to continue on that you've almost in a way validated, like, to a point of, oh, I got everything I need to learn from this. And it's okay to stop and not force it and not keep causing more resistance if the thing isn't just necessarily going to work. I also mm-hmm. like the idea of, yeah, a third party, you, we can call them therapists, but whether they're an advisor, a friend, a family member, uh, a mentor, uh, a professor, you know, any, any number of people in place to help us navigate the waters, mm-hmm. um, so, so vitally important. Um, and then... Th- There's a really great point you you both talk about and I I like that the the, the idea of money and runway came up because um, money doesn't have to be but it can be a stressor when we are constantly worrying about it and then it causes another emotional decision making a lot of times because we're so Mm -hmm. worried about it and it takes us out of kind of our flow of making the things happen or sometimes just the decisions that need to happen or in some cases where we have to make very... Serious decisions about how we're moving forward and not at the, you know, sometimes at the, at the cost of, well, should we partner with this person? Should we not partner with this person? And I heard one thing on a podcast about three years ago on, on this, on the show. Uh, and somebody said this so well put, <laughs> they were running out of money. And he said, so we made a consulting arm of our own company. Because we had learned not only a lot of information about this, but also one of the other um, avenues that the company serves. So we became a mm-hmm. services industry as well as <laughs> as well as a product. He's like, and we used the um, the other arm, the consulting arm, to drive money to help grow the um, the product side.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, he's like, that's how we survived. We were because we were consultants before, and so he's like, we we never thought we'd actually turn our startup, but we were running out of money. And he's like, yeah. and when you worry about money, oh man. And it was so interesting to hear that because I was like, is that what I've been doing this whole time? <laughs> well, like you use X over here to finance, is your financier to mm-hmm. Y over here, create and iterate, create and iterate, create and iterate. So I love that you bring that up because it's you, you have to be thinking about if money does run out and it can so easily, what is the different various approaches and plays that can that can come from that?
2: You, you know, the, the, the money things at both ends of Christina's story. Um, um, they um, the, the founders were were both working in consulting. Um, um, Alex Christina's co-founder is married, so um, when she quit, she could rely on her husband's income. Mm, um, yeah. but, and health um, insurance. that's t- <laughs> yeah, and health insurance. Christina at the time wasn't um, is now, um, mm-hmm. but um, and, and, and so when you step away from the consulting salary, and, and and now you're an entrepreneur and you haven't raised the capital yet. Mm-hmm. You know, you basically you got to launch, and you know, Christina talked about the, the the complicated nature of the apparel industry, sort of designing and manufacturing apparel, an incredible um, series of specialty tasks that all got to fit together and get coordinated. And, and, you know, and had they had more time to study that process before they took the plunge, it probably would have boosted the survival odds. So you know, made a big difference, I think, on the, on the story at one end at the beginning. And then at the end, you know, I mean, Christina's giving you a glimpse, but I've, I've I've seen the whole story. She didn't talk about, um, the one time she left her apartment in those three weeks to go to a holiday ball, um, snapped selfies of herself, um, you know, in front of the punch bowl, um, talk to no one at the party because like, what are they going to ask? How's Quincy going? Mm -hmm. She didn't, you know, even though she wasn't, um, by the way the part of this story we didn't get out which is really something she was forced out of the company um, by Mm -hmm. the board uh, in in a fight over strategy so the company's going at least for a few more weeks she can't talk to anybody because she still wants the company to be successful so snap the photos post them make it look like everything's normal and then you know back to seamless in the apartment and the west wing um but the but the money was for the same reason she didn't have a lot at the beginning it was it there was nothing at the end. I mean, she lived mm-hmm. off credit cards and so forth through the whole thing. You yeah. it, it, an entrepreneur, uh, bootstrapping entrepreneur can't pay themselves anything. And even venture capitalists aren't going to let you pay yourself much. So there just wasn't anything there, which actually, I think, forced Christina to go through. I mean, a lot of entrepreneurs can stretch this um, recovery, um, healing, bounce back over months and months. I mean, <laughs> She, she was forced to do it in, in days or weeks. And, you know, I mean, Christine, you might want to talk about like the conversation, <laughs> the 70 lunches you had to figure yeah. out what you were good at.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, Matt, you said something in your intro about there is there isn't one right playbook or there isn't one right approach to, to building this life. There's only what works for you. And I think where I struggled so much as a first-time entrepreneur, a venture-backed entrepreneur, is there's one playbook that's really um, promoted, which is you got to go all in right? For you to be serious, for you to get venture money, got to go all in. And so from the beginning, I was like, okay, I have to quit my job and go all in and have no other source of income. But what you don't often hear in that all in story is a lot of people have other forms of money. They've got family money, a trust fund, they've got a spouse, they have, I don't know, residuals coming from something, right? They have passive income of some kind. And I didn't have that. And I didn't even know. that 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 was a thing for some folks I just knew it wasn't it wasn't there for me so when I quit my job to go build Quincy I had saved eight months worth of living expenses and that was only if I rented a a couch in someone's living room for a hundred dollars a week and I ate on five dollars a day and that's how I made about twenty four thousand dollars last eight months on the flip side when we shut down um, I paid my rent with my credit card. I had deferred my student loan. So I actually owed more money at this point than I did when I graduated. And I had to get a job. And I had 30 days until rent was due. So I emailed everyone I knew after my period of three weeks of solitude in the West Wing. I emailed everyone I knew. And I said, I need your help. I need you to take me to coffee, take me to lunch. And you're picking up the tab because I'm broke. And I <laughs> need you to help me figure out what I'm good at and where I might fit in the world and what I should do next, because I am so lost right now. I don't even see that. I I can't see what I should be doing. And I did 70 of these in 30 days.
1: Okay. (laughs) What I want to, and this is very, very important, especially for my audience. This is why you win. Humility. Mm. And in a lot of ways, because you also brought up a lot of good points because I, like you, uh, am the same in terms of um, while I came from amazing parents and a very entrepreneurial family, my father was very much of you always have to figure it out on your own. Like, I'm here. You could you guys you could stay with your mom and I for like a night or two. Like, come, please. But like, I can't I can guide you in terms of like if you want to, you know, you want legal advice or you want this with that. But like you know your stuff best and you know your path, like you're going to have to figure out your path best. So it's not like here's a handout and here's this and here's that, you know, and to your point, there are a lot of people who are, and social media glorifies this, which is a basis of why I showed I started this show in the first place. Which is, mm-hmm. oh, I'm an entrepreneur now. I'm like, well, actually, your spouse makes about two fifty a year, <laughs> and you have health insurance, <laughs> yeah. or oh, aren't you part of that MLM that like you're making about a million five, and now you're teaching mm-hmm. business over here, and like you know all that stuff, and it's so it's like. And I'm like, and if you're part of that, and that's fine, that's a residual income, but aren't they kind of taking care of your accounting, your finances, your taxes, uh, operations, uh, you know, manufacturing, distribution of the product, you know, they're just (laughs) under your downline. So you you see all these different people kind of claim entrepreneurship Mm -hmm. from different circumstances versus, and I like you and I have several in my small circle and thank God they're they're doing very well, God bless, but all the same, they had to do it from the ground Mm -hmm. up. And with a lot of humility, which I believe y- our route, your route, right? Tom's mm-hmm. route is that's what happens is that route of humility is what mm-hmm. I believe in terms of the long game is the defining winning mm-hmm. champion. And then the other part of after you had gotten out of the startup, um, I from that's what happened with me, which is, hey, I I don't know what I'm doing. Help me. And most People, successful people want to help somebody who's in a position to listen and be coached. Right? Yeah. yeah.
0: So no, it's and I have I have no, I have nothing against people who have other forms Absolutely. of support while they're building Absolutely. this. Like that's amazing. What a what a gift. You
1: amazing have. blessing.
0: All I want is that part of the story to be transparent. So that yes. folks who don't have that. <laughs> don't compare and say, well, why am I struggling so hard? Like it's hard when you're eating on five bucks a day, that's coffee in the morning, a slice of pizza for lunch. And you hope you get invited somewhere for a cocktail, a dinner, a date. I don't know, because I don't know how you're eating dinner on that. Right. Just have that be transparent about the story. And then you don't feel like somehow you're the one failing at this because you can't, I don't know, go to Burning Man and also run your startup as an unfunded entrepreneur. (laughs)
1: Thank you. And and this comes
0: back to also talking about the failure. I think the folks that when Tom mentions that, you know, sort of maybe blame it on other things or try to couch that failure in and alight it into some sort of success, maybe fold it into a bigger narrative. I think they're missing out on a huge opportunity to, to learn and to just sort of absorb what just happened and have that transparency. I mean, I feel like I'm preaching now, but like set you free, right? Like you're absolutely if, right. If you're faking that, that successful or, or non-failure outcome, you don't get a chance to ever just like erase it from your body, right? And, yes. and be able to move past it. And having those yeah. 70 conversations and just laying it on the table and say, this is what happened and I'm going to be completely honest. And I that it gets it out of me, but it also like it arms me with the opportunity to start practicing talking about that story. There's a reason I can stand up in front of 900 MBA students and tell them I was a failure over and over again. It's because I got a lot of practice at at the beginning. But if you don't talk about it, if you, if you hide it or fold it in, it just eats away at you at some point, because you know that you're not being authentic about what just happened.
2: Absolutely, maybe, or maybe you're just, you're just in complete denial. I mean,
0: (laughs) I (laughs) I think they're big
2: problems. They're they're big problems at the other extremes, right? There are people who just can't, their ego won't let them admit what happened and and their role in it. And the danger with them, I mean, I I agree completely with Christina. The danger is they're sort of bottling it up and it's going to come back and, and, and eat them up. But, but there's another danger, which is they're just going to get back on the horse and (laughs) ride the horse over the same cliff again. Um, Amen. and, and Amen. like I, I, I've looked at what failed founders do and half of them go and found again. I mean, it is a, it's a career mm-hmm. calling, right? That's mm-hmm. what entrepreneurs do? They are entrepreneurs. And at the other extreme are the people, there are people who just beat themselves up and, and come to the conclusion. I'm just hapless, hopeless. I never should have done this. It is all my fault. And that's not true either. I mean, sometimes actually it is true. There are some people who should never be entrepreneurs, but it's pretty rare. Um, uh, lemonade stand in the desert, people, um, and, and with, with no traffic. Um, but but in that case, society doesn't ever get to see what that person could have built. So mm-hmm. so you know there's there's a lot of loss on both extremes, either you know taking no responsibility or too much responsibility. And that space in the middle is is not only I think sort of peace with yourself, um, but it, it gears the entrepreneur up to go off and, and do better the next time. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And uh, you know, Tom, I have a specific question I want to ask you here in one second. Um, but to both of your point, transparency actually is a catalyst a catalyst it educates the masses it brings mm-hmm. on more people because the authenticity helps grow the the venture and also hey guys i'm running out of money here's what's going on here's my mission and why i've been doing this i have an, a mm-hmm. massive community and i'm just wanting to talk to you or i have a small community i just wanting you to know what's going on and since they mm-hmm. don't normally talk about this i thought it was my responsibility to talk about this just letting you know oh christina Tom, um, what's your Venmo? <laughs> what's your PayPal? What's your, you know? And, and you see this countless times with the people who are very authentic and build and build in public, which is now you know mm-hmm. a movement that's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm getting ready to do one myself, where it's like, hey, here's what we're doing with blockchain, and watch us do it in in real time, um, and. This might work. Very Seth Godin, but (laughs) this might work. We'll see what happens, you know. Um, But uh, we're coming at it with a much more strategic mind after all these years, after two decades. (laughs) But um, Tom, so my question to you, there's distinct patterns. uh, And this is something you talk heavily about. Distinct patterns that account for most startup failures. Six, I believe that you've accounted for. I would love for six you to, of them. Yeah, I would love for you to uh, talk about each of them if you're up for it.
2: You 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 want all six. So there's three that apply to early stage startups, like people just sort of trying to figure it out and assemble assemble the team, etc. The stage that that Christine and her co-founder got Quincy to. So three early and three late. I'll, I'll let you figure out after. We'll know, start with the, we'll start professors with the first three,
1: can... and then we'll go with the last
2: three. <laughs> yeah. So so. <laughs> So um, Quincy was an example. Quincy Apparel of of the first pattern, which is good idea, bad bedfellows. Mm. Um, and, and and what we didn't say about Quincy is actually the East founders did an amazing job of validating. I mean, it turns out women want better fitting clothes. So mm. they, you know, if you've if you've heard of Lean Startup, the sort of that swept out of Silicon Valley ten years ago, sort of have a have some assumptions and test them and test them without wasting time and money. Um, Christina and Alex did exactly that. They sort of created samples, um, did trunk shows, you know, go find 30 women, bring them, let them try the samples on and let them place a pre-order. 50% of the women in their target market placed a pre-order averaging $350. Boom. Um, that is strong demand. Yeah. And in fact, as they launched the business, um, they saw it too, the business grew, customers came, they repurchased, they did all the things you expect to see in a healthy business, but what got them was um, just not being able to make the stuff a- and deliver it at a cost that, that could support the business. Um, and they were working through the production bugs, believe me, if they'd had one more collection, one more season, I, su- I suspect Christina would still be running Quincy at Apparel you know, eight years later, um, but the money ran out. And a and, um, big part of it was their lack of domain expertise, lack of industry expertise right? It's complicated. It, you know, it's not every startup that needs that founders with deep industry expertise. If you look at how simple a business like Twitter was at the beginning by comparison to Quincy Apparel, there's no inventory. Um, nobody's packing anything into a box and shipping it. And, you know, it doesn't have to fit. It's just a screen. And, you know, it's a brilliant idea, but it wasn't terribly complicated to build or run at the beginning. I mean, you know, Five years later they probably had community managers and copyright people and so forth. But at the beginning, you know, four people could launch Twitter um, and, and, and without any challenge. So you have to know as an entrepreneur whether you're in a business where that domain expertise is required. You know, and so then if you look at sort of how that how that cascaded through, they hired industry specialists to do those tasks, you know, fabric cutter, fabric sourcer, quality control. There's like seven, eight of these things and they have to fit together well. But they hired people out of out of existing apparel companies, big company people who knew those skills, but they didn't have the attitudes that were right for a scrappy startup where everybody has to shift from priority to priority depending on what's on fire. Yep. And, you know, so they would sit around on their hands saying, "Like, I don't know how to do that. Like, why should I? That's not my job." Um, you know. And, and Christine already mentioned the investors um, weren't adding a lot of value, and they were pushing them to do what tech investors want companies to do, which is swing for the fences, right? You know. They need one out of 20 company to earn a 10 times return. And that covers all the sideways Mm -hmm. returns and and the losses that they make. So every single company has to grow, 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 grow. And, you know, if you're doing apparel, that means inventory. And that means designing and producing stuff six months before you're going to sell it. So is it going to be in fashion then? So, you know, and then the factories that actually made this stuff for them, like, are they going to deal with this little peanut that um, doesn't have any industry connections, no reputation, small orders, quirky sizing requirements? so their stuff just always got pushed to the back of the you know, oh Ann taylor needs an order expedited well you know we know, we know that what come to the front of the production line so bad bedfellows you know basically not just the founders lack of experience and by the way they fought with each other over, over who was going to make the strategic decisions and this is a lesson i think for for your listeners um, you know particularly uh, people coming out of grad school like they um, are qualified to be the boss and they probably all think they should be the boss. And, and we see it all the time with Harvard Business School teams, like you got um, two people, two CEOs, and and they lived with that tension. And sometimes it worked, but a lot of times one of them would just fundamentally disagree with what the other thought was her responsibility. And that'll slow things down. And, you know, a Startup can't afford to be slow. So bad, bad fellows, that's pattern number one. Pattern one, number two, and I'll, I went into detail there because it's sort of relevant to the Quincy story. I'll be faster on the other two. Um, false start just like track and field or swimming the athlete jumps the gun to get an edge but gets caught penalized and so these entrepreneurs in their entrepreneurial zeal to get started like bias for action what do entrepreneurs do they go Mm -hmm. want to build want to sell and they skip the upfront research that every entrepreneur should do to figure out i've actually got a problem worth solving um, and do I, if I do, do I have the right solution? There's lots of ways to skin the cat you know, if I pick the best one. And, and that takes weeks, you know, maybe a couple of months. And if you skip it, the odds that the first version of your product is going to hit the mark are just lower. I mean, you might, but probably won't. And if you've raised a million dollars and it'll last for a year, like that was Quincy's description, and you burn through four months worth of capital on a bad idea, you can pivot to a better idea but you've increased your, your um, mortality odds because basically you've wasted money on the first version of the product when it could have been good if you'd just done a little more upfront work. And then the last one is, um, we call it, you know, welcome to COVID testing, um, the false positive. And, and that is a situation where the entrepreneur gets seduced by strong demand from early adopters. You know, there's often somebody out there that's foaming at the mouth to get what you want And um, they will pass on word to the other early adopters and they'll repurchase. And you don't have to do any marketing because the thing just sort of takes off by itself. Mm -hmm. But the next wave of customers is often much less enthusiastic, Uh, will repurchase less often, won't give you the word of mouth referrals, maybe even have fundamentally different needs than the early adopters. Like um, Dropbox saw this, like the early adopters were Uber geeks, who had software engineers who had incredibly sophisticated needs for file management. But Drew Houston wanted to build a company for his mother, so she could store her recipes. And he had the discipline to not um, over-engineer the product for the needs of the early adopters. And sometimes people do that, and that then then you basically have a false positive. The early demand was 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 not what's going to be true for the mainstream. So those are those are the three.
1: Very well put. Um, <laughs> I've seen all of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, it will. Uh, it was interesting when you're talking about um, the early adopters, especially, you're right, um, they are not, early adopters are not mass consumption, um, and mm-hmm. they sometimes have more intricate taste, and um, mm-hmm. then it's interesting when you go to the next wave of customers, and you say, um, we've got all of this great stuff, and they go, yeah, I only need these three. <laughs> you then know, you go, really? You know, like, because these are a pain in the ass over here. <laughs> so I'd much rather have just these three. You know, and, uh, you know, not many people know the story of Instagram, but that's kind of, you know, Instagram, uh, they were called Bourbon first, you know, and they had three or four years of failure going on. Um, and then they finally got to year like four and asked their audience when it was just really for pictures and for photographers and things like that and for capturing moments. And Everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I only need like these these features right here that's it that's all i need hmm. scaling back to eventually scale up which i find mm-hmm. very interesting because then what happens is you you narrow down a focus and an intention and a use case so that way users can use it. And, and ironically, they were so scared from the l- previous launches that they, they only launch it right there in Silicon Valley out on Twitter and be like, let's just send this to our general friends. <laughs> and if it fails, nobody else knows about it. <laughs> yeah. Sure enough, 50,000 like that ended up on it. Spread, 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 spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was only after four, you know, four or five mm-hmm. years. Most people don't know that part. And then they added features as mm-hmm. critical mass adoption happened. And new use cases were emerging from, mm-hmm. where does the data come from? The people, right? Mm-hmm.
0: But that takes yeah, th- incredible there's... discipline, right? But If you have these uh, rabid early adopters who love what you've got and what you're hearing is, I've over a yes. general customer, right? I need to scale yes. down to scale up. It can be incredibly challenging in those moments to say, I'm gonna pair this back and I'm gonna lose customers in yes, doing that. Yes, you are. In the hope of going in this other direction and growing. But in that moment, like when you send that first investor update that says our user base dropped because of these choices, that takes such discipline and confidence in yes. this new direction you're going. And not a lot of CEOs have that
2: yeah. have that Function. confidence I, I, in that direction. I, I really think it's one of the hardest um Parts of the entrepreneurial journey to navigate, right? Because every entrepreneur, you need the early adopters. You don't mm-hmm. have a business unless you can bring the early adopters on board. And, and you know, I, I think the lesson is you just also have to understand whether their needs are different than um, maybe they're just stronger than, but similar needs to the mainstream, or maybe they're fundamentally different. Like in mm-hmm. some of the examples, we I think the Instagram example is a great one. And so the key is just to research both, really study both before and have a product strategy. And there's several ways you can do it. You could do it the Dropbox way, which is just create a product for the mainstream and bet in a smart way that it's gonna be good enough for the sophisticated, demanding early software engineers. And it worked mm-hmm. for Drew. Um, or you can actually create two versions of the product. That's hard, right? Um, takes a bigger team. You gotta brand two things mm-hmm. separately. Or you can do the kind of migration that Instagram did, which is you know sort of start for the early adopters and migrate the product over time. But the point is to do the research and, and, and have a good product strategy.
1: Absolutely. Uh, I mean, several several interesting things brought up in here. First of all, the um, the scaling back part and losing customers for sure. And when we increase the empathy, humility, and conversation and transparency, hey, mm-hmm. early adopters, you guys are incredible people. I love all of you. hmm we're gonna do some changes, here's why. But I want you guys to be the ambassadors of that change of like, hey, like you guys are my sophisticated people. We wanna bring in some more people, but while I'm learning along the way, I'm just being real about that. And when we start to communicate community-wise, we get a few people that go, thank you for consulting with me first. <laughs> it's like those early adopters kind of take that whole like. And the other thing I was gonna bring up is, it's interesting, you know, VCs, I look at VC. I, I have friends that are venture capitalists, I have helped venture capitalists when they are in the scale mode for uh, lead acquisition, customer acquisition. That happens to be my specialty. I totally get it. But they're bosses. In my opinion, a lot of times they're bosses. And what happens is, to your point, Christina, well, we need this and we don't understand that. We don't understand this. Like, if you did and you didn't just have to put in the money, you know, we would be having a different, you wouldn't be betting on one out of 10. You'd be betting on nine out of 10. And that has been my position on VCs for some time. I think they're incredible when they employ uh, critical thinking, empathy, and character mm-hmm. of like, oh, here's how they're doing this. Oh, let's actually just give the not give money solely, but the resources. We don't need a high price CTO, CMO, et cetera, for the titles. What we need is, oh, we need lead acquisition strategies. Oh, what are our sales and marketing funnels? What are our automations? What are our processes? What is our direct-to-consumer channel? You know, mm-hmm. the things that actually... Scale, but a lot of times investors and I get it, I get it. I love it. you know they want to invest in the future of innovation. Mm-hmm. I just think that if you can dive a little bit further into the details, that number can go from one out of ten to nine out of ten, and instead of mm-hmm. the boss relationship of like, well, where are we at with these numbers? it's like, well, hey, what pivots need to be making in in, in you know the like, let's look at the actual the details, the the, yeah. the, the character
2: of these things, right
1: You but, end
0: up sitting on the same side of the table instead of opposite sides.
1: there it is.
2: So. And, and Quincy took money from the wrong people. Um, it happens. I mean, I, 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 I'd say, I'd say at, at MBA programs, we lionize venture capitalists. right? Where, where where we work, they are heroes. <laughs> and uh, you sort of assume if you're an entrepreneur coming out of Harvard Business School, of course you're going to take venture capital. I mean, it turns and, – and, and Christine and yeah. Alex branded the company as direct-to-consumer. I mean, what could – you know, like VCs love direct-to-consumer, and it was <laughs> direct-to-consumer, but it was also an apparel company. Yeah, and with a website. Apparel lines, <laughs> yeah, with a website. And most new apparel lines are not funded by yeah. uh, Andreessen Horowitz and, and and Venture Capital. You know, you, yeah. you, you get money from yeah. other apparel, successful apparel entrepreneurs or, or factories, for that matter. I uh,
0: mean, this is truly why I wanted to become a, a teacher. I wanted, wanted to join the faculty. I think there are so many playbooks that you can run as an entrepreneur, and we see one in the press so often. We see it on Instagram and we see it in TechCrunch of the VC backed and the scale huge and the, you know, it's it's that's one way to do it. Yeah. But it's not the only way and it's not always the best way that fits your why of why you want to be a founder or what you want to do with your life. And there are so many other playbooks. And I just, I want our students, I want your listeners to know there are 20 ways. I won't say skin and cat because that gives me a terrible (laughs) imagery, Tom,
2: but there are 20
0: different playbooks that you can run. If you want to be an entrepreneur and build something, um, you want to be a creator or you don't even say that you're an entrepreneur, but you're, you're a maker, right? There are lots of ways that you can find an audience, build the thing, get the financing to to support your efforts. And venture capital is one tiny strategy right. of a whole basket of strategies. But,
1: and I think it's so vitally important you're having these conversations as an educator, because it also gives a lot more hope and and allows the space for more creativity and innovation mm-hmm. versus like, this is the box that you go in. And, and more often than not, that box is failing quite a bit, and 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 <laughs> yeah. so I, and I hundred I percent agree with you because I I've a- even asked some entrepreneurs when I was doing some mentorship programs for them. And I said, would you be okay with a five million dollar a year business that um you know your uh, expenses are like n- zilch practically, and uh you know your overhead is is kept to a fair minimum, and I don't know you're living a good life. Is are you more of a small business? Or, are, or is it, you know, wh- what are you looking for? And mm-hmm. I, often at times, and I get it, because of, as you mentioned social media and other things, there's the glorification of, and not even glorification, there's the glorification on the media side, but then there's the individual's journey. I need validation, I need a title, I need to say I've done something, I need to prove myself, I need love, I need this, I need all of these things that are an internal journey. Mm -hmm. And until you release all those and do things more from a place of like, oh, no, here's exactly why I'm doing this. And I'm grounded and rooted in my, you know, in myself more. And it's not Mm -hmm. about these things. You start to think differently and less emotional about it, but more with emotional intelligence. And and so I'm so glad that you bring this up and educate about these things, because I think it brings more hope to wait a minute. I don't have to do the traditional corporate route. I can go make and create over here and now God bless with the, you know, with blockchain and well, I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but like, <laughs> but where that's going to really take, uh, the paradigm shift, uh, for mm. creative, creative ownership mm. and content, uh, and whatnot, um, and monetization, it's going to change the, the, the game drastically. So I'm mm. glad that you're talking you, you both are having these conversations.
2: Yeah. And it'll, it'll open the door, I think for a lot of women and underrepresented minorities Absolutely. too. Yeah. Um, Everyone. You know the the VC game. We we could we could go for another hour on, <laughs> on um, some some of the gendered patterns in, in it, but yeah, um, uh, yeah, we, we need a lot of ways to to fund businesses. Yeah, it it op- for, so lots of people can be successful.
1: Absolutely, yeah. it it opens up the game completely in an all inclusive manner, and mm-hmm. that is exciting beyond belief. Because it's like you know the the gatekeepers are. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> They're kind of going, you know. They may not realize it. I think it's very evident um, watching them kind of grabs to every last mm-hmm. little bit of control. But uh, but we're we're moving into a very beautiful, abundant time um, where it's all inclusive and and creativity is mm-hmm. unleashed from everywhere and everyone. And and I'm, I'm hopeful of that. Tom, what um what 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 do you have going on with the book right now?
2: Um, podcasts. <laughs> Lots of podcasts. And, uh, and Clubhouse and, awesome. um, yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and, and I got to tell you, I've been, um, I, there's not many moments in my life where I've been every um, half hour sort of checking Twitter and LinkedIn to see sort of <laughs> who's coming. It's, it makes it, it's, it feels super self-indulgent, but um, there it is.
0: Welcome to the, the pandemic book tour playbook. <laughs> I just feel bad for everyone who released a book a year ago, like bless them for figuring out how to do the, uh, the virtual launch and tour. Because uh,
2: When did, when did yours come out? It was about a mine- year ago, wasn't it? Well,
0: no, mine came out uh, two years ago. So we fully right. cleared the pandemic, but I had a number of friends who all had books coming out March, April, May of last year, and just the whole world imploded. And, <laughs> Um, and it made the, the book, book tour much harder. So, luckily, you have Clubhouse
2: and, and yeah, all the other I gotta things. I got to say, it's actually it's actually a lot of fun. Um, yeah, there's um,
1: Tom right you there. Know, you, you get to talk. I mean, you, <laughs> follow. I'm going to follow you. Get you get to talk to Christina,
2: you're next. I mean, what could be worse than talking to smart people about the work you've been doing for the last few years? So, yeah. And I, you don't I've even have to get it. on a plane to do it. That's, That's exactly part. right. Yeah. Not yeah. at all.
1: Christina, are you on there?
0: On Clubhouse? Of course.
1: Of course. Uh, there's a lot of Christina Wallaces. So. Oh, it's
0: at CM Walla. I have a, a, uh, a unified brand across all social media. I join platforms even if I never want to be on them, just so that I can own my handle.
1: CM Walla. I will, I'm still, you know, I think uh, um, Clubhouse is still making it, uh, Search is still coming up with a lot of Christina Wallaces. <laughs> so But I will find you. I will find you. Oh, wait, there you are right there. Perfect amazing um where can everybody else find out about you too? interact connect whether it's um you know tom and christine with your guys personal brands or social uh or the book brands uh, tom please let us let us know yeah, where, the,
2: the, yeah wherever you buy a book online is where you'll find out about the book I, I didn't create a website um i i'd be on not only every half hour but then i'd be checking the website every <laughs> five minutes so uh, i figured if i was going to get anything done um so yeah just just um I, I won't say the A word, sort of go to your local bookstore and, and find it there. <laughs> Please support uh, your local bookstore.
0: And and uh, rate Barnes and, and B- leave reviews. Like every Absolutely. every creator knows this. Ratings, reviews, they're so helpful in helping people discover them um absolutely uh, tom i was going to buy you a domain for the book but why startupsfail.com is obviously taken uh why Startups. <laughs> i think Stop i Failed own also it also <laughs> taken oh good good Start the domain but never yeah. built the site Classic. yeah you would know. I'm, gonna, I'm,
2: I'm gonna rev it up <laughs> you know the problem with not having a website is there's no place to collect all the media so you know when, when this gets posted you want to put it someplace and and that's what that's the one thing i'm missing i otherwise You can find most of what you need on on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or the publisher's website. But the big missing thing is all. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'll retweet you. And for everybody listening, Tom Eisenman, um, his book, why startups fail a new roadmap to entrepreneurial success. I'm assuming a lot of you really uh, um, connected with what we were talking about today. (laughs) So I would strongly recommend checking out his book uh, because that's how we can expand this conversation. And also, these conversations happen, happen more. And Christina, what, what about you? you? How do people connect with you, your book, et cetera? Because I, again, these conversations need to be happening more. So, yeah.
0: I am at CM Walla, wherever you might be on the internet, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I don't make anything, but I do enjoy watching the videos um, and on Clubhouse.
1: Amazing. Amazing. And um, the book that came out or did you or you're not working on that? new to
0: big that was two years ago new i'm working on something new i'll let you know once uh once that is a thing and i'll come back we can talk about that
1: absolutely absolutely well and that brings me to this uh, the thing i was going to tell you is that it's a journey driven podcast so i tell mm-hmm. people all the time and some people some people are on their second and third round you're you're welcome back on because six months from now a year from now a lot can happen a lot can change and we're never going to be short on content, <laughs> <laughs> ever, especially being in an entrepreneurial creative world. Things are constantly changing and we're constantly learning and evolving ourselves and as are the people around us and the businesses that we create. So um, you're both welcome back on anytime. And you know I really, really appreciate it. And, and Tom, I know you're on a, a podcast tour. Hopefully this is one of your better stops, perhaps.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's, a lot, it's more fun. Uh, I think I'm going to take Christina everywhere now. <laughs> that, that was a lot of fun. Uh, amazing thank you Uh, absolutely thank you
1: absolutely and for everybody listening uh you can check out tom eisenman his book why startups fail uh he says don't use the a word but you know listen i know we also live in a digital world so at least you know if you're gonna use that and make sure you leave him a rating and review um as i always ask for the same from all of you guys uh it does really help to christina's point it really really helps um we wouldn't care as much if the algorithms <laughs> didn't, <laughs> didn't expand us more and be like, "Hey, this is a solid guy right here." Like, yeah, actually, I do have a show that's pretty solid, but <laughs> you know, I didn't. Uh, you're gonna have to help me here. Um, so it really, really means a lot. And then you can also, you know, you can connect with both of them. You can connect with Christina C M Walla C is in Kat, M is in Mary Walla W A L L A C M Walla all across social. Um, reach out to them. You might have some questions. You might be potentially a, uh, a master's student. You might be a startup person or somewhere in between. Uh, I say that if you're doing a startup, you're probably getting your master's, your law degree, and your tech degree all in one. <laughs> I, <laughs> I inadvertently have a law degree and a, a degree from MIT. <laughs> but uh, but I absolutely appreciate both of you guys for coming on the show. Uh, hang back one second, and uh, for everybody listening, thank you guys for tuning in always. Uh, Really, really appreciate the ratings and reviews. Please continue to do so if you haven't already on Apple. Uh, You know, you can find the show on Apple and Spotify and iHeart and Google and Radio.com and like 30 other platforms. And I'm just very, very, very grateful to be doing what I'm doing and very grateful for the 6 million plus downloads. You guys are incredible and I couldn't be here without you. So you're very much part of the journey. Thank you, guys. We are blessed. I am blessed. Uh, We're out.